1 through 8 that we've been giving out the last uh, two weeks, and now today the third week. Many of you have brought those back with you, but some of you haven't been here, or maybe you forgot yours. The guys were giving out fresh copies. Anybody need? Daniel has some here. Anybody need a copy? There you go. And we got one over here, Daniel, as well. You need one? Yep. Sandra. <laughs> he said who. That's why I gave your name as a delinquent. <laughs> Anybody else? Everybody have? We'll be looking at page six. Daniel. Leslie and Larry are a couple more deadbeats. Um, We'll be on page six in just a bit. A couple of announcements. One is two weeks from today is our next baptism. And uh, it's too late for you to apply, really. I mean, you can apply, but not for the one in two weeks. Uh, but if you apply, we'll uh, talk to you about the next one we're going to be doing. But we have several people who will be getting baptized. And I announce it because we encourage our folks to attend those as an encouragement to the people being baptized. It is a baptism celebration. It is an ordinance of God's church. And so even if you don't have a, a relative getting baptized, these are people being baptized into membership into our church. And it's always a great time. We have a, a dinner uh, with it as well. So please plan on attending 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon, two weeks from today on November 5th. And then three weeks from yesterday is our next newcomer's brunch at our house. Kim uh, does a great job putting those on. She has some ladies who help her. Uh, with some of the food for that, and it's always a, a good spread. But more important, we enjoy meeting uh, folks through that uh, means at our house for brunch. So if you've never been to one of the brunches, even if you've been around here for a long time, we would love to have you come. So please register for that. You can do so on our website. If you click on the banner, the graphic for that that you see on the screen, then you can uh, register. We do need to know who's coming for food purposes. The first eight pages of that we've been giving out for these last and now third week uh, comprise the first three lessons of this topic, God's design for sexuality. And the rough idea was to have three lessons on each of the key words in that title. God's and then design and now today, uh, sexuality. So I've taken the, the first sessions to focus on the general root of sexual struggles of all types and of whatever form, whether heterosexual or, or homosexual. And I've done that for two reasons. One is I want to avoid emphasizing one type such that we forget or overlook our own struggles. One of the dangers with a series like this that is going to talk about many of the manifestations of sexual sin that we see in our day and that are new to our day is that we can so focus on those new forms, those new aberrations, and we can forget that sexual sin is something with which humanity in general struggles. And so I, don't, I want to avoid emphasizing one type so that we forget or overlook our own struggles. And so I've emphasized that we have, in an overly sexualized culture, become desensitized to the ways in which we tolerate sexual expression, sexual representation, sensual representation, 
in ways that are displeasing to the Lord. You know, I just, uh, just on social media this week, I, f- I follow, a, you know, a few people. There's a Christian writer, a, a lady uh, who puts out some good things, so I follow her on, I don't write on tw- Twitter generally. I've only had like two handfuls of tweets. It's now X, right, formerly known as Twitter. I don't even know what posts are called on X now. Is, is there a name? I don't know. But I still call them tweets. But anyway, she put a, a post out. And she was talking about some, something that apparently you have bikini-clad women who give advice on, like, finances. And people, and people subscribe to this. And she was trying to, as a Christian woman, she's trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's going on here. I mean, are people, any, is anybody watching this, she was asking, that really thinks that these person have these people have some expertise that they should follow. Is anybody creating their portfolio based upon what this person is, is saying, right? And so she says uh, in, in one of her posts, this Christian lady says, it's not pornographic, it's just these bikini-clad women. And that phrase struck me. Because you know there was a day when that was considered pornographic. And so I did post. And I said there was a day when that was considered pornographic. And biblically speaking, I think still should be. And I cited what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about lusting in your, in your heart. What 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, to all Christians avoid sexual immorality. It's God's will that you be, this is a quote, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it is God's will that you be sanctified. Sanctified means set apart, holy. It's God's will that you be sanctified. And then there's a colon. Avoid sexual immorality. One of the ways you're set apart, one of the ways you're holy, is because you avoid sexual immorality. One of the ways you avoid sexual immorality is not looking at half-naked people who aren't your spouse. But we do it all the time. And we think nothing of it we have become desensitized to it such that we tolerate it, such that even in our homes, we, we overly sexualize our children very, very early, much too early, and many Christian people do that. So I don't want us, I want to avoid emphasizing one type so that we forget or overlook our own and the fact that we have become desensitized and so tolerate what would have not been tolerated in generations earlier. And further, in so doing, we lose moral authority to speak out against these other aberrant forms. So while we tolerate things that violate the standard that God has set for holiness, and then point the finger at other people, we lose the moral authority that we, that we should have. Now, that means it's easy for us to be hypocritical, to engage in what God prohibits, tolerate what God prohibits, become increasingly desensitized to what God prohibits, but then condemn what other people are doing. And so it's easy for us to be hypocritical in that way. Now, let me just say, Look, the charge of hypocrisy made toward Christians is overdone. 
Because think about it for a minute. You know, non-believers pretty much never have to worry about being hypocritical. You know why? Because unlike Christians, they do not have a published standard against which they're judged. We have a published standard and a very high one. And so we are rightly judged according to that. We're evaluated according to that. But if you don't have one, if you are your own standard, you can always meet it by adjustment if necessary. Nobody's published your standard, and so you can never be accused of hypocrisy. But that being the case, and it is the case, nevertheless, we don't want to be hypocritical about it, do we? We want to have the moral authority to be able to speak to the culture, and we can only do that if we are, in fact, striving to live according to the sexual ethics that God has given us in his word. So that's one reason that I've taken the approach I've taken. Here's a second, a second reason. It's to provide an apologetic framework for how to deal with these issues. Now, when I say apologetic framework, I'm using the word as in apologetics, the discipline of theology that is involved with defending the faith. That's what the Greek word in your New Testament, apologia, means. It means a defense. And so there is a branch of theological study. When I was in seminary, I took a course in, a required course in, and an enjoyable course in, apologetics, defending the faith. And I want to set this in an apologetic framework. Not that we're making apology, not we're saying we're sorry for what we believe. No, we're, we're defending what we believe. And so, in the very first lesson, and in the title of this, it's God. We must start with God for, as we saw two weeks ago in the opening session, for existence and for values and for morals and for reason and for science. That's on page three in your notes. If you weren't here for either of the first two sessions, all of them are always recorded, so you can listen to them at our website. And we've also, always also made the case that wrong requires right. Abnormal requires normal. Disorder requires order. We live in not only a, an overly sexualized culture, we live in an overly psychologized culture as well. Now, I'm not against the psychology, but I'm just saying over-psychology. Like there is a label for everything. And a, and a disorder. But my point here is that all of the disorders assume first order. Something cannot be considered a disorder until we have some standard by which things are ordered. And so we need to remind people of that because they easily forget that. They just assume that there's a way things are supposed to be, this sort of nebulous thing. Well, how do we know the way things are supposed to be? From whom did we get that? Where is the book that I can go to, the rule book, the guidebook, that tells me, us, what that is? And we need to press that upon the culture in an apologetic, defense of the faith way. What is the standard? What is the purpose? What's the design against which we compare and contrast what's happening in our day? So the reason I've taken the approach I have, before we get into the more recent aberrations of sexuality in our culture is for those two reasons. I don't want to overemphasize what other people do without dealing with the stuff that we have to struggle with. And I want to set it in this apologetic framework. 
I was privileged this past week to be invited to speak at, on January 6th, a, a conference, a one-day conference for young adults called Christianity Versus Everything. And it's an apologetics conference. And my part is going to be to talk about this. And I intend to talk about it the way in the framework that we're laying out. You've got to have God first. Here's why. And you've got to have a standard first. And here's why. So that deviations from that standard then can be evaluated accordingly and so on. So we're encouraging our young people to attend that on Saturday, January 6th. And we have some uh, invitations on the Welcome Center desk for that. And so the Bible teaches... If you want the big picture of the biblical view of the world that's given in Scripture, the biblical worldview, it can really be summarized, I think, in three words, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. That God made the world with intention and with design. And he gave his creatures an orientation to that world, telling them who he is, who they are, and what he expects from them. Disorientation occurred because we sought our own way, as we saw last week. The fall, sin, entered God's otherwise good world. Things then became distorted. The good material world that God made is now used by sinful people for our own ends rather than, than God's. Thankfully, God doesn't leave it there. But God is in the process of reorienting his world. So there's orientation, disorientation, reorientation is God restoring what's broken because of sin. But because of sin, in the fallen world in which we live now, everything is disordered, at least potentially. What God made is still good, but we misuse those good things. We misuse material things. Not for God's glory, but for our own ends. And so, as I said at the end of last week, it's not money that's the root of all evil, it's the love of money. Money's not the problem, it's what we do with it. It's how we prioritize things. Our bodies, physical, material bodies, are not bad. Contrary to what some have taught through church history. They were made by God, they're good. But misused, distorted. And, so, and thus sex in the same way. So friends, the evil that we fight, all of us, that, that we fight still this side of heaven, even though we may belong to Christ, this side of heaven we still have the vestiges of the sin nature. And the, the evil we fight is internal before it's external. The root of the problem is the problem of the heart. And that's an internal problem. So I have an internal heart problem. You have an internal heart problem. And God is in the process of remaking our hearts so that we desire what we should in the way we should. But please remember always that the sin fight, the evil we fight, is first internal before it's external. Otherwise, you will make the mistake of thinking that the answer to your sin struggle is primarily in getting rid of things external to you. It involves that. It involves good habits of not watching things you shouldn't watch and 
not being around the people you shouldn't be around and that kind of thing. But it is first a heart issue and then secondly an external issue. And as far as Satan goes, resist him and he will, do you remember what the Bible says? He'll flee from you. So stop making such a big deal about him. Okay? God's got this. Christ defeated Satan. You resist, he flees. He has no power over the, over the Christian. So with all of that, middle of page six. God's design now, thirdly, for sexuality. And I say here, cultural sex is disoriented because we live in a fallen world. It's nearly impossible today to go for long without hearing or seeing some reference to sex. We live in a media-saturated culture, and our media is saturated with sex. In small ways and large. And we tolerate it bit by bit so that next thing we know, the, the undertow has taken us further out into the water than we ever thought we would go. And so we watch stuff that our parents would have never watched. Even, you know, just new shows, as I mentioned last week, they make sure that they put sexualized people in front of you. And we tolerate that. We, we learn to accept that and expect that. You see it in the plots of movies and television shows, in the suggestive commercials for erectile dysfunction, in the images and magazines and those flooding the Internet in the links to pornographic websites offering fantasies at the click of a mouse, in the mainstream magazines with articles like five sex secrets women wish their, their husbands knew. Sex has become a cultural obsession. But the picture of sexual intimacy that our culture paints is a cheap counterfeit and a perversion of God's original design, like a surgeon's knife that's been designed for good but can be used for harm if put in the wrong hands. Sex has been twisted and torn from its original purposes with devastating consequences. So take this exercise quickly. What percentage of your sex education was received at each of the following schools? And you want to get to 100% here. So peer school, my friends talked about what we thought, knew, or had heard. Homeschool, my parents explained to me what sex is. Private school, I read things on my own or asked certain people not, that are not my parents. Christian school, church, Sunday school, youth group, school of hard knocks, I just learned by experience. School of the silver screen, I learned from movies or television or add some other one up to 100%. Now, here's the, here's the sad reality. That however that mix is for you, for the vast majority of people here, it's not going to fall in, they heard about this at church. <laughs> or they heard this from their parents in a way that was helpful. So rather than hearing from trusted sources that can use the ultimate trusted source in God's word to communicate something so valuable and so important, we get it from these other, these other sources. That's the truth for most of us. And that needs to be remedied. <laughs> By, by the church. So it's one of the reasons that 
I will not marry anyone. I will not officiate at the wedding of anyone with whom we have not done premarital counseling. And when we go through premarital counseling, this is one of the things we talk about. And we make sure that that couple is prepared for this and that they know why God has brought them together. They know why God brings them together physically and so that they can avoid all of the pitfalls that the culture has around it. So cultural sex is disoriented. I think none of us would argue with that. Biblical sex is reoriented. Genesis chapter 2, when God gave Eve to Adam, the Bible says in marriage a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now note, note this term one flesh. Becoming one flesh involves deep relational, relational intimacy of which sexual intercourse is an integral part. Dr. Lewis Evans wrote about the term one flesh. The one flesh in marriage is not just a physical phenomenon, but a uniting of the totality of two personalities. In marriage, we are one flesh spiritually by vow, economically by sharing, logistically by adjusting time and agreeing on the disbursement of all of life's resources, experientially by trudging through the dark valleys and standing victoriously on the peaks of success and sexually by the bonding of our, our bodies. So sex is not just a physical act. God created it as a process of intimate communication of which the act of physical intercourse is a significant part. It's powerful, emotional, bonding experience designed to strengthen a marriage much as metal rods reinforce concrete. Premarital sex is so common in our culture today that some people are considered odd if they maintain their purity until marriage. And so, I don't know if it was a TV show or if it was a movie, but the 40-year-old virgin, and I, guess, I didn't watch it, but I guess that's supposed to be because that is, I mean, come on. Is that the, the idea? That you would have somebody who's 40 years old? who would maintain their virginity if they're not married. But, you know, God doesn't scoff at that idea, as we will see, even if the culture does. It's so common in our culture that some people are considered odd if they maintain their purity until marriage, but God has our best in mind when he commands us not to engage in sex before marriage. He wants us to experience the absolute best rather than the poor counterfeit. So biblical sex has purpose. Cultural sex is disoriented, biblical sex is reoriented, and biblical sex has purpose, and it has these three purposes associated with it. One is procreation, to have children. And so at the very beginning, God said, you will be fruitful and multiply. Sex is intended for the creation of children. God's command to be fruitful and multiply has not changed, or, nor has it been revoked. So God in creation makes in humanity beings in his own image that are able to reflect him back to him. Since God's purpose for everything he does, everything, is his own glory, and since his own glory is the display of his character, then he made these creatures with the ability to reflect his character back to him and display it to the rest of the world. 
And that's the reason he wanted us to be fruitful and multiply. Because God made humanity to be a mirror reflecting him back to him. And hear this, God wants to see those mirrors all over the place. Everywhere God looks in his world, he wants to see a reflection of himself. His beauty, his orders, his, his, his morality. All of that, and he is remaking humanity in his image through Christ, through the gospel, through the mission of the church, so that that original design will come to fruition so that there will be a world only comprised of people who reflect God's character back to him. Do you long for that? That should resonate with the heart of every believer. Lord Jesus, come quickly. So procre procreation, to, to have children. So I said... We don't marry people if they don't go through premarital counseling. And during premarital counseling, I ask them about having children. And at last, there is something that providentially hinders the couple from having children. The expectation is that they will. And if I have a couple that says, no, we're not going to have children by choice, then I want to know what, <laughs> what the reason for that is given that God says to be fruitful and multiply. And if it's, you know, we've got a lot of plans, we've got a lot of stuff to do, we want to finish school, we want to finish our career, we want to, you know, whatever, I say, you know what, you guys are too selfish to get married. Let's, you're too self-centered. And you need to be focused first on God and then on what God wants. And order your lives accordingly. And he desires that his word be, world be filled with people and he uses parents to bring children into this world in order to reflect him back to him procreation now throughout our church history there have been many who have thought that's the only reason for sex is just to have children but it's for a couple of other very important reasons second one is protection when we say protection we mean from temptation protect protecting both the husband and the wife from temptation to go outside the marriage for sexual expression. Failure to sexually satisfy each other in marriage can lead to a spouse looking outside the marriage for fulfillment. Now, where does that, where does that come from? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here's what, here's what it says. Now, for the matters you wrote about, and in the NIV, after it says about, now for the matters you wrote about, there's a colon. And then he describes what it is he's now going to discuss that apparently they wrote to him about. So here's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 7. If you were to go to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul, who wrote those 16 chapters, tells you that for the first several of those chapters, He's writing to correct errors that he heard about because some people from the house of Chloe told me that there are disputes among you. So he says that in the first chapter. We don't know who Chloe is, but apparently Chloe's house had a bunch of snitches in it <laughs> who snitched on the church at Corinth 
and told Paul, we're a wreck, we're a mess. We are, we are not united. We've got people suing one another in court. We have got people who have their favorite teacher and celebrity teachers. And so some say Peter's my guy and some say Paul's my guy. And then some people are, you know, say, oh, well, Christ is my guy. And you notice that that's how then Paul starts to correct them. He deals with, in the first few chapters, the celebrity preacher thing. And he deals with the fact that in chapter 6, they're taking each other to court. So he deals with the stuff that the household of Chloe told him about, but then he comes to chapter 7 and he says, now for the matters you wrote about. So Paul had two sources of information for what he dealt with in the book of 1 Corinthians. One was what Chloe's people told him, and the other was that some of the Christians in the church at Corinth had written to him and said, we've got these issues, we don't know what to do with them. And so chapter 7 starts with the things they wrote about. Now for the matters you wrote about, colon. And then he deals with that matter in chapter 7. We'll see it in a second. You go to chapter 8. First line says, now about food that has been sacrificed to idols. So apparently he's going through a checklist in this letter that he received, the things you wrote about. Chapter 7 deals with one of them. Chapter 8 deals with food sacrificed to idols. Apparently that was one of them. Then when you get to chapter 12, here's how it starts. First verse. Now about spiritual gifts. So that was a third thing that they were having problems with. And he takes three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, to deal with that. So what you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is Paul responding to a letter he received from folks in the church at Corinth saying, we don't know what to do about marriage, divorce, remarriage. So he spent the whole chapter dealing with it. Verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. He's saying it's okay if you don't get married. Not everybody has to get married. Paul was not married. In fact, later in the chapter, he says, it would be fine if you were as I am. And I am devoting myself to the, the Lord's work. And God has marriage for most people, but there are some of us for whom he does not have marriage. And that's okay. So that's the very first thing he says. It's okay if you're in my situation. It's a minority, but it's okay. But then he says, but since there is so much immorality... Each man who does not have the ability to be celibate for the rest of his life, like Paul did, each man that does not have that, which is most, then should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. So most of you should indeed get married. And the reason you should get married is for a protection. There is so much temptation. And the truth is most of you cannot bear that temptation. And so each of you should have your own husband or wife. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So one of the reasons that God gives marriage is, as we say here, protection. Protection of both spouses in the marital relationship because it is a bulwark. It is a 
safeguard against the temptations of a sexualized culture. And Corinth was indeed that, as we are, as we are today. So as you deal with this protection idea, um, when I do premarital counseling with a couple, uh, I say to them that you need to agree on a set of hedges that you are going to place around your marriage to protect each of you from temptation. And so you are going to have hedges about what you watch. You're going to have hedges about what you read. You're going to have hedges about who you hang around with. Whether or not you're alone with someone who's a member of the opposite sex. You're going to be careful about all of that. I've been married for 38 years. Before I became a pastor, I had a real job. And my real job sometimes put me in situations where I'm to have lunch with one-on-one -on -one with a female. And I couldn't avoid it. So my wife and I had a, we had a system. I let her know that I'm having, this, I'm having this lunch and this is where I'm going and all that. Now, you think, wow, your wife doesn't trust you at all? <laughs> no, uh, in fact, part of the reason she does trust me so much is because we care enough to do this. And so we created those kinds of hedges about the things we watch, about the things uh, we read. You know, romance novels back when we were first married were a really big deal, for, especially for women. And so Kim did not, did not imbibe in those. So she didn't have some fantasy life that she was living with someone else that she's never met. Uh, I do not. I know that uh, Mike Pence criticized because he said he would not have, you know, lunch with a woman uh, alone or he would try to avoid that. He was criticized. Uh, hey, I've been doing that for, I've been doing that for all these years. And when I have meetings here, I make sure there's someone else here in the building. If it's going to be me and a, and a woman, we have doors, we have windows, we have all kinds of stuff for, for that. And s there's a book that I recommend. The old title of it was called Hedges. The updated title is Loving Your Marriage Enough to Protect It. And it's about these very kinds of things for men and women to, to put in place. Your most powerful sex organ is your mind. It's what you think about. It's what you fantasize about. And so you need to train your mind on pure things. Train your mind on the Word of God. Train your mind on healthy intake in your reading material, in your music, in your shows. It is God's will that you be sanctified, friends, that you avoid sexual immorality, and it starts in the mind. Third purpose for marriage, procreation, protection, but then yes, believe it or not, pleasure. That God made sex for pleasure, and that is seen in this 1 Corinthians 7 passage. Because he starts out and says, there's so much immorality, so each of you should have your, your own spouse. But then says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. So in the marriage 
relationship, the body of each belongs to the other. And then the next verse says this, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that you're married, each of you belongs to the other physically. To deprive your spouse of physical intimacy is indeed a defrauding, is the word that the King James uses. Defraud the other. So you belong to one another. Fulfill then your duties to one another, unrelated to whether or not having children. And this indeed will serve as a further protection so that your fulfillment comes from within your marriage, the only place that it's intended by God to, to come. Now, that's what the Bible teaches. Sex is for these purposes. Yes, have children, protection, but then also for pleasure. And you see that not only in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the pleasure piece, but also in a book in your Old Testament that you've never heard anybody teach on. You guys know what I'm talking about? Song of Solomon. So, um, I taught on Song of Solomon a number of years ago. And you read Song of Solomon publicly. And people are like, whoa, I didn't know that was in there. <laughs> it's about the physical relationship. And talks fairly candidly about that. And it is a book in your Bible that's devoted to the engagement of a young Jewish man and a young Jewish woman before they are married, but in anticipation of their, their marriage and their physical relationship together. And they talk about their, des their desires and their anticipation for that and then look forward to the, the fulfillment of, of all of that and it's in your Bible. Now, because Christians have taken such a pietistic approach to topics like sexual pleasure, then we have gone out of our way to try to allegorize things like the Song of Solomon, as if it's not really talking about, you know, an engaged couple. But this is really an allegory about Christ and the church. And so, you know, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, it says that the church is the bride of Christ. And so you go back to the Old Testament and you say that's, that's all nonsense, okay? Not to put too fine a point on it, but it's not an allegory about Christ and the church. The church didn't exist at the time Solomon lived. It's about two young people who are engaged to be married, and it's talking about sex in a proper way, in the way that the church and parents ought to talk about it with their children and prepare them to do this. And one of the refrains in that, uh, in that book is this, quote, Do not arise, arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And it says that a number of times. And you know what it's saying? It's saying there is a proper time for this. It's a good thing that a good God has made. But do not arouse or awaken it until that time. 
until God has brought you the person to whom you are going to be betrothed and then married for the rest of your life. And you don't engage in it. You don't arouse or awaken it until that, until that time. Did you all see me up on the screen here? <laughs> Didn't know what I said to deserve that or, <laughs> or what you did wrong to have to see that. <laughs> Do not arouse or awaken love until it is so, until it's so desired. So sex is designed by a good God for his good purpose that includes pleasure. Now here's where one of the ways it goes south. A lot of ways, but here's one of the ways it goes south. And particularly among men. So I tell the guys when I'm doing the premarital counseling, uh, by the way, when we do the sex talk, my wife meets with a woman, I meet with a man, and we talk to them respectively. And when I talk to the guy, I say, this is one of the ways you, you can mess this up, is that uh, for men, physical intimacy is like a microwave, and for women, it's more like a thermometer. So women have to have some time. And men can be ready pretty much any time. That's kind of the idea. Hit the button, ready to go. I mean, that's just the truth. Well, the problem with that then is that the physical relationship between a man and a woman, because of that difference, can look like to the woman, if you're not careful, men, it can look like this is simply transactional. This is something I can do quickly that we at, at any time. And if you're not careful, it can be removed, it can be divorced, it can be severed from the overall relationship. And for women, primarily, they see this rightly as an expression of the overall relationship, whereas men can just see it as something we do. Something we enjoy, but it's something we do. And if it's not an expression of the relationship, then the woman can come to resent it. Like I'm being used to just fulfill your physical desires. Where do I fit into the rest of your life? Where do I fit into communicating with you? Where do you express to me in an ongoing way the value that I have for you? And that is what this pleasurable thing is supposed to be the expression of an overall relationship that we are having. And this is one intimate expression of it. Further, the woman will not only come to resent that, but think about the logic of this. If you can simply go through this physical act and in your mind and in our relationship, detach it from the overall environment that we're living together in. If you can do that, then logically what that means is really that could be fulfilled by anyone. If you depersonalize it, then it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be me. And in fact, that's very often what happens. Marriages whose sexual expression is simply transactional are marriages that are on very thin ice. And so that fulfillment can be, can be made through somebody else. One last thing about this. 
This is one of the reasons then that pornography becomes such a large issue. Because in pornography, by its very nature, you separate the relationship from the sex. It's sex with somebody I don't know. It's sex with somebody I don't have a relationship with. It's a lazy person's way of pursuing intimacy because relationship is really hard. Relationship takes time. But in marriage, what you're called to is an ongoing, life-giving, one man to one woman relationship that's cultivated over time before the good God who gave it and then expressed in this good gift of sexual intimacy. And if those things are divorced, then all kinds of bad things happen. I'll give you some more paper next week. If any of you have a watch on or you have your phone, take a look and see that it is straight up noon. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and the blessings of it, to be able to worship you, learn of you, be encouraged by one another and our mutual desire to please you with our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for the Lord's day and for your people and this gathering. We ask you now to go with us. Help us to take the things that we have discussed and to, to implement them, not just hear them, not to be just hearers of the word, as Scripture says, but to be doers of the word. Help us put these things into practice. We ask you to grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.